This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russian-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is September 22, 2023. It's been 3,496 days since Russia's illegal occupation of Crimea on January 27, 2014, and one year and 211 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression against Ukraine. Today's podcast looks back at yesterday's events, and Zarina Zabrisky, executive producer and co-host, will join me today with her ongoing coverage in Kherson. There are map updates today, and you can see our Russia-Ukraine war map to help you visualize the areas discussed. You can find a link in the podcast's description. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by a team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense and the Ukrainian General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine morning reports, operational commands north, south and east of Ukraine, open-source intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mail bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth. Because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. The Russian Ministry of Defense remains in a chaotic state, incapable of creating mission cohesion between penal units, mobics, conscripts, elite forces and proxy forces. At the direction of President Vladimir Putin, the Russian government is in the largest purge of dissident voices and perceived internal enemies since the Soviet era, including the leaders, mercenaries and employees of PMC Wagner, objective state media journalists and war bloggers, far-right nationalists who want the Kremlin to take more aggressive action in Ukraine, and human rights activists. There remains a lingering possibility of partisan violence within Russia after the killings of Evgeny Prigozhin and Dmitry Utkin. President Putin's stature, both inside and outside of Russia, remains in a weakened state. Russian Chief of Staff Valery Gerasimov and Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu are some of the best allies available for the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense, due to their acceptance of systemic corruption, political infighting, waste of military resources, and refusal to adapt to the realities within the theater of war. The soft response by Ukraine's allies after Russian aggression on Ukraine's border has further emboldened Moscow to take increasing risks, which could cause a significant international incident. The perceived slow progress of the ongoing Ukrainian offensive, questions about the capabilities of Ukrainian military commanders at the battalion and brigade level, and ongoing anti-corruption measures highlighting the problems within the Ukrainian government are unfairly straining Western support. Western partners are not meeting their promised military training, heavy equipment and ammunition delivery dates, and these continued delays are negatively impacting Ukraine's military capabilities. 
Despite these issues, the growing number of combat-ineffective and combat-destroyed Russian units has forced commanders to commit strategic reserves meant for a fall-winter counteroffensive into defensive operations. The continued refusal to rotate combat-ineffective and combat-destroyed units is enabling Ukrainian forces to make tactically significant advances at Orikhiv and Bakhmut. In our assessment, Russia will attempt to destroy Ukraine's energy infrastructure over the fall and winter. Finally, while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the threat should be taken seriously. Today's action report starts in the Donbass. In the Bakhmut area of operation, or AO, the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, said a Russian attack northeast of Grigorivka was repulsed. Multiple Russian sources reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive in the Orihovo-Vasilivka area, but did not specify if they were attacking in the Dubovo-Vasilivka or Zaliznyanske direction. Yesterday I told you we were renaming the Klishivka AO to the Svitlodarsk operational direction. New intelligence hints that Ukraine has large ambitions, and we've returned the name to the Klishivka AO. Ukrainian forces have crossed the railroad tracks north of Klishivka and made a tactical advance in the woodblock parallel to the Klishivka-Bakhmut road. Language in the morning report from the Russian Ministry of Defense, or Armut, supported that fighting has ended in the settlement. Ukrainian forces also made tactical gains east and northeast of Andreevka, with GSAFU and a prominent Russian mail blogger reporting fighting in the area of. The war map was updated. Assessment. It is a sound military decision to push Russian troops north toward Bakhmut and east toward Zaitseva. The more territory Ukraine can control northeast and southeast of the plateau west of Klishivka, will enhance fire control on Russian ground lines of communication, or GLOCs, that supply lines. We maintain that taking physical control of the T513 highway east of Klishivka will tighten Ukraine's grip on the Russian forces occupying Bakhmut, and that Ukrainian forces will advance east. The new question is, how far north will Ukrainian forces advance on the Kurdyumivka-Bakhmut road? A final note. Russian sources reported that Ukrainian troops were on the offensive at Kurdyumivka. Next, let's talk about what's happening in southwestern Donetsk. There have been no significant changes in southwest Donetsk. Armod claimed that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive near Vesele at the base of the Krasnohorivka plateau. That's the settlement north of Andreevka. Russian and Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops tried to advance on Krasnohorivka, the one north of Marinka, and on the subject of Marinka, positional fighting continued. In the Vogladar AO, GSAFU reported that a Russian attack in the district of Mykilske was unsuccessful. Northwest of Staromlinivka, a prominent Russian mail blogger reported that Ukrainian forces continued offensive operations near Priyutne on the Zaporizhia-Donetsk administrative border. Russian forces attacked civilian areas of Kurahove, west of Marienka, with rockets, causing widespread damage and fires. 13 people were wounded in the overnight attack. In occupied Donetsk, Russian troops and civilian engineers continued to build new defenses from Manhush to Nikolske, 
including half-high Dragon Teeth, north of the M14 Highway, the critical Crimea Land Bridge G-Lock. Ukrainian forces have made a significant tactical gains in the Orihivayo in Zaporizhia. On the western edge of Verbova, a new video released by the Russian 247th Airborne Assault or VDV Regiment showed Ukrainian forces evacuating wounded troops under artillery fire. Two days ago, a video from the same area showed Ukrainian and Russian troops engaged in close-quarter combat in the same trenches. We'll link to the videos in our daily situation report, and you can subscribe to our Patreon for access to many of the pictures, videos, and resources I discuss. You can find a link in the podcast description, and we offer a 7-day free trial. Quick assessment. While the video shows the situation is extremely difficult for Ukrainian troops, it does confirm that Russian forces have been cleared from the trenches in parts of the second echelon of the Surovikin line. Ukrainian forces have also advanced through the 160-meter heights east of Novoprokopivka. Russian forces are being squeezed between the Ukrainian advance and the Russian static defenses, 2 to 4 kilometers to the south. Additionally, Ukrainian forces have pushed westward, reaching the eastern edge of Novoprokopivka. Quick assessment. In warfare, mobility is life. As Ukrainian forces push south, Russian troops will have less territory to maneuver in with their anti-tank defenses at their rear, as we previously assessed on August the 27th. Eventually, Russian troops will have to, as the Russian says, withdraw to more strategically advantageous positions southwest of Novoprokopivka or fall back behind another section of the Surovikin line. The recent operational success at the Surovikin line was confirmed by the acting director of the Department of Planning for the use of the main directorate of the National Guard of Ukraine, Colonel Mikola Urshalovich, at today's press briefing. Quote, Despite dense mining and engineering equipment, as well as strong resistance of the occupiers, our units had partial success, advanced both in the depth of the enemy's defenses and along the front. In occupied Zaporizhia, leaked pictures showed the results of the September 19 Storm Shadow missile strike near the Avtocvetlit or Avtokolorlit plant in Melitopol. An official with the security service of Ukraine or SBU, said that the commander of the Russian 58th Combined Arms Army and his chief of staff were wounded. They also claimed there were several dozen casualties. Russian troops and military resources continued to be shelled in occupied Tokmak, a vital Russian logistics hub for the defense of occupied Zaporizhia. Pictures from insurgents showed there was a large explosion in occupied Rozivka. We are working on a battle damage assessment. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitopol, reported there was an explosion near the airport, which Russian troops use as a base, and in Terpinya, which is the southernmost tip of the Surovikin line built to defend the M18 E105 highway G-Log to the strategically important city. Now let's talk about the Black Sea, including the countries of Romania and Bulgaria, occupied Crimea, and the Mukulayev and Odessa regions. Director of Communications for Operational Command South, OKP, Natalia Humenyuk, said that all Russian warships had withdrawn from their naval bases in occupied Crimea. 
In her assessment, Russia, quote, fears attacks from the Ukrainian defense forces, unquote, and remains mostly on the eastern coast of Crimea and the Kerch Strait. The failure of a P-800 Onyx anti-ship cruise missile caused a massive explosion just off the coast of Cape Fiorland. As people looked on from Jasper Beach, the missile rose 40 to 50 meters and then crashed into the Black Sea. There's a link to the picture in today's situation report. Satellite images from Planet Labs shared by Radio Liberty confirmed that Storm Shadow cruise missiles struck the alternate headquarters of the Black Sea Fleet at Verkhnesadova. The before and after video showed that half of the compound was wiped from the map. While one P-800 Onyx cruise missile failed, another didn't, striking a recreational area in the Bilhorodnistrovsky district of Odessa. A carefully worded message was released by local officials, stating, quote, there was a fire and no casualties among civilians, unquote. Russian forces continued to batter the civilian areas of Free Kherson. Over the last 24 hours, seven civilians were killed and 12 wounded. Russian forces conducted 82 fire missions, firing 383 artillery rounds, mortars, Grad rockets from multiple launch rocket systems, indirect fire from tanks, drone-delivered IEDs and UMPK glide bombs. Kherson Oblast Administrative and Military Governor or OVA Oleksandr Prokudin reported one person was killed and two wounded in Bilozerka, where my co-host Zerina Zabriskie reported from on Wednesday. You can hear her interview with the resistance leaders who held the Russian advance back at Bilozerka for 20 days in March 2022 in our September the 21st podcast. The settlement of Lvov on the Dnipro River was bombed by the VKS using UMPK glide bombs, killing a pensioner. The VKS also bombed Tyahinka. Overnight shelling of the city of Kherson killed three and left five people hospitalized. In western and central Ukraine, I have an update on the missile strike in Cherkasse. A video was released showing the moment a warhead from a damaged Russian cruise missile struck the hotel. Cherkasse Oblastova Igor Taburets said search and rescue operations ended with 11 people injured and 13 rescued, including one trapped in the rubble. In the Kyiv region, Ukrainian officials confirmed a Russian cruise missile hit the Pepsi bottling plant in Vishneva. The adjacent distribution center was severely damaged, with Pepsi products scattered across the area. The warehouse also stored bottled water and dairy products. In response to the targeted strikes on Ukraine's power infrastructure, Kyiv officials are prepared to open more than 450 points of invincibility in the event of widespread outages. Over the summer, 20 of the centers remained open. During the winter months, points of invincibility provide a place to warm up, charge electronics, access the internet, get a hot drink and food, and, at some locations, basic medical care.
Let's talk about important theater-wide events. The United States announced another military aid package for Ukraine, using the Presidential Drawdown Authority, which pulls from existing stocks. Today's $325 million package includes air defense missiles, rockets for HIMARS, air defense systems, anti-ammunition, and more. A complete list is available in our daily situation report. Sweden delivered 10 Stridswagen 122 main battle tanks, or MBTs, which are Swedish modified German Leopards 2A5s. Germany announced another aid package had been delivered to Ukraine. It includes 4 HX-81 trucks with semi-trailers, 12 Mercedes-Benz Zitros trucks and 17 satellite communication terminals. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky met with the United States Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin. They discussed continuing to provide Ukraine with military support and the supply of artillery systems and long-range weapons. They also finalized the details of developing a military technical and defense industrial cooperative between Ukraine and the US. Secretary Austin also said the first Abrams M1A1 MBTs would be delivered to Ukraine in the, quote, coming days. National Security Advisor to the US President Jake Sullivan told reporters that President Joe Biden had decided that he would not provide attackers to Ukraine yet. But he did not rule it out in the future. Listen. Shh. Do you hear that? That's the sound of our analyst team screaming. The president of Poland, Andrzej Duda, said that the statement about the suspension of arms supplies to Ukraine was distorted by the press. Quote, the prime minister's words were interpreted in the worst possible way, Duda said during an interview on Polish TV. Duda continued. We both had the same position. We cannot hand over our new weapons, which we are now buying billions of dollars for the Polish army to strengthen, to strengthen the security of Poland. I will be the first to oppose the transfer of these new weapons that we are currently receiving from South Korea or the United States, such as the new Abrams, the Patriot or the HIMARS. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at malcontentnews. What's going on in Russia? It's time for mobilization, Mobix, and Mir. An investigation by Important Stories and the Conflict Intelligence Team concludes that since September the 21st, 2022, the first day of partial mobilization in the Russian Federation, the average lifespan of a Russian Mobik is 4.5 months. One in five were killed within 60 days of mobilization. The study found that more than half of the Mobics killed in action were between 30 and 45. Another investigation by Mediazona, which reviews public court records in Russia, found more than 3,000 Russian soldiers have been charged with desertion since January 1, 2023. Almost a full brigade. The number of cases is accelerating, with Russian courts filing more than 500 cases in July. On the first anniversary of partial mobilization, family members of Mobix appeared to have coordinated a quiet protest on Russian social media. 
Thousands of posts on VK, the Russian equivalent of Facebook, demanding that their family members be allowed to rotate from the front or for those whose contacts have expired be sent home. State Duma deputies have been barred from future travel to occupied Ukraine, and any members currently there must leave. The Russian Security Council made the decision in early September. Travel will only be permitted for hmm, humanitarian causes and must be coordinated with Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Valery Gerasimov. Why would Shoigu and Gerasimov not want State Duma deputies to see the situation in Ukraine with their own eyes? United Russian State Duma Deputy Lieutenant General Andrei Kurulev said the only way Russia can win is by mobilizing all of the unemployed and forcing all Russians to work 12 to 15 hours a day strictly on the war effort. Kurulev justified the call, saying that during the Great Patriotic War no one asked questions. Gurulev left out the part that Soviet citizens who asked too many questions during the Great Patriotic War shot. The State Duma has passed a resolution declaring September the 30th as the Day of Reunification, with another illegal and unrecognized declaration that the annexed territories of Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson are part of Russia. The declaration coincides with finalizing the fake elections held during the first 11 days of September. Private military company Wagner Group employees have been forced to provide 24-hour security at Evgeny Prigozhin's grave, and security cameras have been installed. The mercenary leader's gravesite has been robbed and vandalized, including the theft of a violin and a sledgehammer. A Russian Mir is on full display. Our war crimes and human rights section sometimes discusses graphic details of human rights abuses and crimes against humanity. Today's report does not include graphic details, but you can skip to the geopolitics section if you are sensitive to these topics. In Mariupol, Russian occupiers continued to gather any books written in Ukrainian or included topics of Ukrainian history, language and culture for destruction. The Geneva Convention considers destroying scientific, educational and cultural institutions a war crime. United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Gutierrez accused Russia of war crimes in Ukraine. He said there was documented evidence of quote, conflict-related sexual violence, arbitrary detention and extrajudicial killings, unquote, adding that the executions were carried out mainly by the Russian military. The head of the Public Relations Department of the State Special Service of Transport of the Ministry of Defense of Ukraine, Colonel Vitaly Kirillov, said that 174,000 square kilometers of Ukraine were covered with explosives, including landmines and dud munitions. Over 80 teams of explosive ordnance disposal engineers are working to demine the liberated territories. Additionally, more than 20 demining machines from 12 nations are clearing non-combat areas. The machines are vitally important for Ukraine. A team of engineers can clear 100 square meters of territory on a good day, while a machine can clear up to 5,000 square meters in the same amount of time. Yesterday, I discussed how Ukraine is working on licensing systems from at least two countries for domestic production.
It was a very busy day in geopolitics. Zelensky had a series of meetings in Washington, D.C. with U.S. President Biden, U.S. Congress Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy, Majority Leader Congressperson Steve Scalise, Minority Leader Congressperson Hakeem Jeffries, and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. After meeting with Congressional leadership, Congressperson Jeffries told reporters at a joint press conference, quote, Together, we have made significant progress in protecting democracy, freedom, and dignity, the values on which both our countries are based. The suffering of the Ukrainian people from Russian war crimes is enormous, but more than half of the occupied territories have already been liberated from the Russian invaders, and we clearly see that the victory is getting closer. The diplomatic row between Poland and Ukraine appears to be diffused, with President Duda of Poland saying he was ready to meet with President Zelensky as soon as there is an opportunity. During an interview, Duda said, quote, There is no need to raise the level of emotions, as this is a dispute that concerns a very small segment of Ukrainian-Polish relations. In an additional sign that cooler heads would prevail, Ukraine and Poland agreed to meet within the next few days to find a solution on grain exports. According to the Ministry of Agrarian Policy and Food of Ukraine, both nations agreed to develop an option for cooperation on export issues that would benefit both parties. Early in the week, the ambassador of Ukraine was summoned to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Poland because of Zelensky's speech at the UN General Assembly. During his address, the Ukrainian leader accused Poland of, quote, helping to set the stage for the Moscow actor, unquote, in response to the Polish embargo of Ukrainian grain in defiance of a European Commission order. Norway plans to join Finland, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland in blocking access to cars with Russian registration from entering its nation. Secretary of State of Norway Eivind Vard Pettersson told reporters, We are currently considering how to do this and will quickly come back with effective measures. Bloomberg reported the United Arab Emirates is considering introducing controls to limit the grey market export of sanctioned and dual-use goods to Russia. Over the last 18 months, the amount of semiconductors and advanced electronics from Europe and the United States passing through the UAE has dramatically increased. Investigations have repeatedly shown that many of these electronics end up in Russian weapon systems. Finally, here is a summary of key economic news that impacts Russia-Ukraine. In India, the Alrosa State Corporation has decided to suspend the purchase of industrial-grade diamonds from Russia for 60 days. Alrosa was one of Russia's largest customers and is suspending purchases due to, quote, concerns about declining demand for diamonds in international markets. The head of Gazpromneft, Alexander Dukov, warned that Russian gasoline, diesel and aviation fuel exports restrictions would create a more serious energy crisis. He said that export restrictions would improve the domestic fuel supply in the short term, but long term they would reduce refinery output, sparking a worse fuel crisis. Russian ministers were unfazed and announced they were implementing temporary restrictions on the export of gasoline and diesel fuel to stabilize the domestic market. And that's what happened on September the 21st. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, let me turn the podcast over to our executive producer and my co-host, Zarina Zabriskie, who's reporting from Free Herson. Today, on September 22nd, the Russian military continue to attack Kherson. I hear the explosions from outside the window as I'm working on this podcast. As a result of shelling in Kherson Oblast on September 21st, seven people were killed and 12 were wounded. The Russian military shelled the territory of the Kherson region 82 times during the day, according to the head military administration. They targeted residential areas. One of the interviews that I am bringing to you today was interrupted by such attack. Seven fires broke out in the Kherson region due to the Russian shelling. In particular, they fired on Bilazerka, the heroic village I was telling you about during our last podcast, and one person was killed others were wounded. Russian troops are extremely actively shelling the right bank of the Kherson region, emphasizing aviation, according to Natalia Huminyuk, head of the press center of the Southern Defense Forces. She reported that last day the Russian army dropped 14 guided air bombs on the Bereslav district in the Kherson region. And a lot is happening on the international arena today. So we will look into the important business of trade in Europe. Slovakia and Ukraine have agreed to lift the ban on Ukrainian grain imports, according to Reuters. The agencies state that the agricultural ministers of Slovakia and Ukraine have agreed to establish a grain trade licensing system, which will allow the important ban on four Ukrainian products into Slovakia to be lifted. Additionally, the Slovakian ministry noted that Ukraine has agreed not to file a complaint with the World Trade Organization. Importantly, Ukraine and Poland have agreed to find a solution regarding grain export, as was reported by the Ministry of Agrarian Policy and Food. The parties have agreed to work out a mutually beneficial approach to export issues in the near future. The next round of negotiations will take place in the coming days. By that time, both sides will have prepared their respective questions and prepare its proposals accordingly. Meanwhile, we're here to discuss the situation with Don Arles. Hello, we 
are here with Don Arles, my colleague, who is a journalist for TVP World, the Polish television, who spent a lot of time reporting from Ukraine throughout the full-scale invasion and currently reporting and covering the current events from Warsaw. Don, thank you very much for being here with us. Well, thank you very much for having me, Zarina. It's a fantastic podcast so far, so I wish you the best of luck with it. Appreciate it. So now we hear a very important subject for everyone and for us in Ukraine especially. As we know, in recent developments, Prime Minister of Ukraine, Denis Mihal, proposed a compromise on grain exports to Poland, Hungary and Slovakia. And Ukraine currently plans to sue these countries at the World Trade Organization over unilateral restrictions on Ukrainian agricultural imports. At the same time, Ukraine suggests a compromise scenario to the European Union and neighboring countries involving verification and approval of exported goods. Could you please explain the details of the compromise that Prime Minister Denis Mahal has proposed regarding grain export to Poland specifically and also Hungary and Slovakia? The First thing I think I'd like to point out here is that Polish parliamentary elections are just around the corner. And the same is true down in Slovakia. Hungary, let's um, let's put it in a little bit of a different box, if you will, uh, if we are familiar with the opinion of Hungary and how Hungary has been involved or not involved in this war so far. Here in Poland, of course, as I mentioned, the, the elections are just around the corner. And it has come out that well, there is quite a significant amount of grain that has hit the domestic market here in Poland. And that, of course, um, causes prices to fall and causes more unsettlement, if you will, amongst Poland's farmers with them sitting on a lot of grain that they're not able to, to sell. But it's not just grain. It's also Ukrainian food products. Um, they are also coming into the country in large quantities, large quantities or small quantities. That's that's still a matter of debate. Let's get to the, your question, and that is the reaction of the Ukrainian uh, government to this development that Poland will ban the import of Ukrainian grain and foodstuffs. The immediate reaction from Kiev was to take Poland to court in the World Trade Organization. And while well, I can just say that that didn't hit home very well, maybe that wasn't the best diplomatic move at the beginning. And I think from the Polish perspective, at least now, the proposal of a compromise is not really addressing the problem. The problem is that there are large quantities of Ukrainian grain and agricultural products and foodstuffs entering the Polish market, causing problems within Poland's own domestic market. Now, Poland has been a staunch supporter of Ukraine ever since way before the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, for several years now, this government has been supporting Ukraine in every every fashion it, it typically can and, and sees possible. Therefore, as I mentioned, you got elections, you've got farmers, so that's a large community, and it's still a very large base for the law and justice electorate. Um, and therefore, you're going to see a move like this to try and calm people's uh, domestic fears here, as this is just one of the externalities, full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine. 
One thing that's important to highlight is that the current grain ban here in Poland doesn't affect Ukrainian grain exports to world markets. That transit through the country will not be affected whatsoever by this essential ban on domestic imports. Yesterday, I believe Polish President Andrzej Duda expressed concern over Ukraine's action in the grain dispute and As he did so, he likened Ukraine to a drowning person and emphasized the need for self-protection for Poland to avoid harm from Ukraine's action. What are your thoughts on this analogy? And how do you see Ukraine's actions in the grain dispute? Again, the politicians are likely to say one thing in Warsaw, another thing in Kiev. And, you know, they're going to have to bounce off each other in a reactionary manner. And that tends not to help the overall picture. Uh, what they need to do is be into better communication. I believe they need to have strategic communication, especially around this issue. I'd also like to remind everybody that when a rift arrives between two otherwise very, very good friends, partners who have the very same interests at heart, then these differences are often exploited by Moscow in several different channels to make the dispute look much bigger than it is. And we can't discount Russian disinformation and Russian interference in issues like these to be amplified the differences between the two governments' positions. So that being said, I believe that both Warsaw and Kiev need to come a little bit closer together to the on this issue uh, diplomatically and in strategic communication so that they can both put out the proper message. Personally, I am surprised that this issue has escalated to, to the point where it is right now. Some experts I've talked to in Ukraine say that it's not so widely talked about in, in Ukraine and it's not such a big deal. Prime Minister Denis Shmyal has also, in one of his first tweets when he released the information that he was going to take Poland to, or Ukraine would take Poland to the WTO. He also said that Poland was doing this for populistic domestic consumption so close to the election. Okay. That was an explosion. So John, uh, I yes. uh, I might come back to you on that because we were just hit here. All right. Get safe. I'll get back to you. Yeah. Okay. I, we're safe, but I have to stop now. was quite a dramatic pause and now we are back talking to Don Arles and Don of all people has been in a similar situation before with me on the other end doing interviews so he's very well aware of how this goes and we will get back to our very important subject of Ukrainian-Polish relations. Poland supposedly soon to stop providing support for Ukrainian refugees in 2024. Support currently includes canceling residency requirements, providing work permits, free education, healthcare access, and family benefits. Uh, can you possibly provide insights why Poland has decided to end support for Ukrainian refugees in 2024? And is it connected with the current rising tension? Poland was the first country to offer Ukrainian refugees, first of all, uh, not only safe haven, uh, not only 
take down all border controls as the refugee crisis was unfolding in the first days of the war. Um, I was down in the area covering that um, at the beginning of the war, and it was quite dramatic. Now, to see, uh, I've lived in Poland for a long time, to see Poland step up the way it did in the um, in the first days of the war and maintain that and even double down and extend all of the possible social benefits that it can to that it allows its own citizens but to extend them to uh ukrainians who are fleeing the war and living over here some of which have lived here since the outbreak of the war um it is quite a fantastic deed um by the Polish government. Uh, that being said, of course, the social benefits add up. They take away from the state budget, talking about at least over 1.5 million Ukrainians who are still in Poland and receive those benefits. Um, so it is quite an undertaking. I'm not a government official, so I don't know exactly what the calculation is. But most likely, again, the elections could have something to do with this. There is a little bit of exhaustion, if you will, to you know why Ukrainians get all these benefits from the Polish population. But I would assume that if they're going to be stopped in 2024, I, I believe it's after the first quarter, they can always be resumed. And depending on the situation at the time, I believe that the calculation was that Ukraine would be a little bit further along in the counteroffensive. We've also seen big waves of uh, refugees return to places like Kiev and others, especially during the first year of the war. I mean, we can remember going to Kiev and it being like a ghost town. And now if you go to Kiev, it's a bustling city once again. So um, probably those were most likely the calculations. And I wouldn't say that although it is set to end, um, and it's a political decision, it can always be extended. And remember, elections, 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 if there's a change in government, or even if there isn't, things can still change. Quite a clear picture here. A popular populist narrative that we all are familiar with in every country. There is uncertainty about trade ban. It's unclear how Poland will respond to potential Ukrainian embargo on vegetables and fruits. I believe they're tomatoes, apples, and such. Similarly, it is unclear how Ukraine will react to Poland's ban on the import of Ukrainian agricultural products. With this uncertainty surrounding trade bans between Poland and Ukraine, how do you think these trade tensions might affect the agricultural and economic sectors of both nations? I want to add here that Polish Prime Minister Morawiecki warned Ukraine of adding more products to the import ban if the conflict escalates. And in light of this warning, and the Ukrainian ambassador was summoned to the Polish Ministry of Foreign Affairs, if the conflict intensifies, what steps can both Poland and Ukraine take to de-escalate the situation? Right. Everything that you mentioned is absolutely true. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, this is strategically important for both countries, for both Poland and for Ukraine. Obviously, there's been some miscalculation either in Warsaw or in Kiev as to how to deal with this disagreement amongst otherwise friends. And until the governments are able to come together to stop this rhetoric coming out of each capital and then being um, respun, repackaged and capitalized on uh, on the other side, it's going to be a tit for tat. And the more we have of that, then the more we're going to have a strain of relations, I believe, between uh, between the two countries. I was of the opinion just a 
few days ago that this was actually becoming more noisier. It was more noise than it was substance. And there are still a lot of questions about the size and scale of this problem. We see from official Ukrainian estimates, it's we're talking about uh, this year, 1.2 million tons of grain to Poland in the first half of this year. Well, that's not quite a lot. In fact, if that's the truth, then it doesn't warrant this current political dispute between the two countries, because that is really just a drop in the bucket. Some Polish estimates put that figure about seven times higher. Is the truth somewhere in the middle? Hard for, for, for me to tell. But also, what's interesting from our perspective here in Poland, all the help that's been extended to Ukraine, whether that be um, for refugees, for uh, social programs for them, for all the aid that's coming out that's come out of Poland, and especially the military assistance, which has been very significant. It's, it's really difficult to see that really such a small problem in terms of dollar figures is causing such a large political dispute. And here you touch upon a very important question, which is a Polish arms supply to Ukraine. And yesterday, in the latest disturbing news, Poland will stop supplying weapons to Ukraine as, quote unquote, the country needs to actively arm itself. Is it true? And how do you assess Poland's active arming efforts in this context? The question is whether that quote was taken slightly out of context. Now, naturally, Poland has been modernizing its army and creating a force that was still largely based on Soviet weapon systems uh, out of the Cold War to now uh, NATO standards and American and South Korean weapons, modern weapons. Poland is foreseen to have the largest land army well, on the European continent by the end of the decade. The Polish government has been spending billions and billions of dollars trying to modernize its, its armed forces. That being said, Poland has contributed pretty much all of its old weapon systems and ammunition to Ukraine and was the first to do so. And thanks to that decision by the Polish government, it was that decision that was able to, in my opinion, garner so much support in Europe, it helped unify the European approach. This seems to be like a natural conclusion. Poland, GDP-wise, is only so strong. You need to look further west to countries like Germany, which is the largest economy in Europe. Now, you've seen them lag behind at the beginning days of the war, or in terms of military assistance. They were very reluctant to provide any of that. Here we are, more than a year and a half later, and Germany has made a giant leap in military assistance to Ukraine. The United States is still the leader. Can those countries do more? They certainly can. I would see this as a natural conclusion. Poland has given, contributed what it can. Polish arms industry will continue to contribute to Ukraine, but in terms, not a handover and donation, but in terms of uh, purchases that are facilitated by a lot of the aid that Ukraine gets from the United States and others. Brilliant points. Thank you for that. And I have followed the volunteers from Poland delivering humanitarian aid. It was tremendous help in the beginning of the war and continues quite a bit. I know of these multiple efforts in Odessa to end on a positive note. Despite the grain scandal, the Deputy Prime Minister of Poland also mentioned that continued support for Ukraine 
is to be expected. I want to bring up something that you have mentioned. We cannot underestimate the Kremlin's ability to exploit any discrepancy in the dynamics, and not just Poland, but other neighboring countries, and using their ability to amplify anything through the mass and social media, which is divide and conquer. Any kind of disagreement, screaming that Poland and Ukraine will not be doing anything together anymore. This is just one of those issues that is really hard to dissect, even for people that, uh, like myself and like you, that sit here and are constantly evaluating the relationships that we have. An issue like this comes up, and really it's a golden egg for Moscow, especially before Polish elections. Really, we have to do our homework and we have to try and discern exactly what it is that's important in such a situation. Poland has been a very staunch supporter of Ukraine and Ukraine's victory against Russian aggression. That will continue to be the case despite the fact that there is a political dispute over these grain imports. It's in Poland's strategic and moral interest that Ukraine come out of this war victorious and Poland will more than likely support that all the way. Don Arles with TVP World reporting from Warsaw. Thank you, Don, for your brilliant analysis, and we will certainly come back. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Zarina. So I'm here with Anton. Anton, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, Zarina. Pleasure meeting with you and being on your podcast. My name is Anton Kirichenko, and I'm the founder of Ukraine Animal Rescue, an organization that is dedicated to save animals that lost their war homes and owners because of the war. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I have seen so many animals. This help. What brings you here? I came here on a mission to see what animals we can help and in which way. First and foremost, we always bring food for animals, dry food, wet food. The goal is to feed as many animals as possible, then give away the food for people who care for those animals. Maybe they have animals of their own, maybe there's some lost animals. We also try to see how we can take animals with us if they need urgent care, if they're in a rough shape, somebody who's really in a dire situation. The most important, we're trying to see how we can impact the existing community that helps and cares for so many animals, for locals, how we can organize the consistent support of them that they can still keep feeding those animals, they keep them warm. There's one person sometimes cares for 20 animals at the same time every day. This is wonderful Valentina. She just came out of her apartment. Let's help her out and give her some food. I'm very happy. This is also my friends. Oh, wonderful. You speak English. Yeah. They don't have house anymore. Mm. So we take care about them also. So how many dogs do you take care of? Now here it's just six coming more. So like six, to, so six <laughs> permanently plus some visitors. Around ten. Four kids in apartments, five kittens plus mom. So six, ten, and then six more cats in apartments that have been left by the owner. Yeah. So totally 16 cats and from six dogs regularly plus incomers back and forth up to 10. You build this little homes. How much do you spend on the food for cats and dogs every month? Uh, for dry food every month, I spend around 4,000 grivna. Like this wet food, so it's around 2,000. All the medical care. It's around $250. Yeah. There's only for food and basic medical vet care. Valentina built this energy <laughs> barrier 
that the ducks will follow her until very least place here, but they'll never go to yeah. the kittens. Then she comes back and they follow her. Look, we're gonna, we're gonna follow us now. Look at this. You said that you sometimes take some animal. Can you talk a little bit about what is your base and if you have a shelter? We rent in a house in Kiev Oblast. We have five dogs, all large dogs. Nobody wants to adopt large dogs. And we have six cats. Four of those dogs were rescued, three from Hostomel and one from Kherson Prior. Five cats that have been rescued, so they're also rescued from the Hostomel. And what happened in Ukraine, there's not a lot of people who can adopt animals, and there's so many animals that need that. It's very hard to bring the animals abroad cost-wise, logistics-wise, trying to do what we do, keep on doing what we're doing on the most impactful and helpful way for animals in the community. Currently you're in Kherson, and according to some reports, yesterday was one of the heaviest night, and today was the heaviest morning of shelling since last November, since the moment of liberation. You are risking your life rescuing these animals. What moves you? What's your motivation? You know, everybody needs a purpose. I never expected to be a volunteer help people, help animals in such way. But this war put me in a position that I need to find my place and help and do whatever I can in the most impactful way. And I love animals, so it's kind of win-win. I want my country to win. There is people on the front lines and there is people behind the front lines who have to do something every day to bring relief, help, and victory. And that is so laudable. Thank you so much for doing this. You have mentioned to me in the conversation that you started to focus on animal rescue when you first visited Bucha after the liberation. Can you talk about this a little bit, about your impression of these days? It was almost surreal and it didn't feel to see this because the only things I saw like that before was in the movies. Like there is no way you could think the places you visited hundreds and hundreds of times because my sister lived in Vorzil. I just saw this. It was a post-apocalyptic scenario. Was, I, I still cannot believe what I saw. Destroyed buildings, destroyed cars, abandoned cars, rockets and shells and exploded everywhere, burned out, military equipment you i still cannot what caught your eye how did you first notice the animals was it a cat or a dog what was the first animal that may made you think oh this is it i now need to be rescuing the animals i think that was a very clear moment at some point uh, either in gustomo there is two multi apartment buildings five-story buildings they're pretty visible they're both been heavily damaged, almost pretty much destroyed. And when we came there, first, it was a couple of days after liberation. There's been only a couple of people living there. One elderly lady, couple of guys, and there is just animals, cats, dozens of cats. And you can see they're very well groomed. They're, they used to groom themselves, dogs. There's been so many of them. Animals used to live in those apartment buildings. They always stick to their home, which was destroyed. It was a very heartbreaking moment. One of the department buildings later was Banksy artwork. We came there before Banksy, before, before it was ready to be painted. That was just the first time we were like, we have so much food for people, but there, we gave away all the food and we still have left. But we had very few for animals. And we said, okay, the balance have to shift 
to those who are really, really need help. And later down the road, people start receiving more and more help. Animals, not so much. Yes, there is an organization that still care for them, but there's just so many of them. There's just so many of them that lost their homes. And what are your plans now that you will be finishing your rescue operation in Kherson? Are you heading back to Kyiv? Are you planning any other trips around Ukraine? I will definitely come back to Kherson because I found a lady who take care of so many cats and dogs. Some of them are in apartments, some of them outside. We want to help her organize dog houses, organize shipping food for her regularly. There is a lot to be done in improving what things should do. And we want to continue helping other people who do this help for animals when they live in this devastated areas. And of course, we have a long goal, big goal. We have a dream of building our own true rescue center for dogs and cats. Like this is, this is an ultimate dream that we can accomplish. That's beautiful. And my last question, after the war is over and Ukraine wins, do you see yourself continuing in this line of work? Yes. I'm finally found the things that I'm doing there that makes me happy. Nothing ever done before in my life I was doing, and I own multiple, several businesses, successful businesses. It always felt like I'm not at a place where I want to be. And once I start doing this rescue missions and helping animals, it's just something that it just feels right and that's it. And I'm, I'm very in peace and happy with what I'm doing. One last, last question. Are you a dog person or a cat person? I used to be a cat person, but now I'm a dog person. Thank you so much, Anton. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.